Hi, this is Alex Skolnick, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey there, metalheads and Kerrang enthusiasts. Welcome to yet another edition of Focus on Metal, also known this week as Kerrang! Episode number 8. Yep, we are now 8 episodes deep into our 2017 Kerrang! Magazine project. And those, of course, include some of the greats from Kerrang! Magazine, including two killer ones that we did with Sylvie Simmons. Lots of good stuff that uh, she put out for us. And if you want to revisit any of those past episodes, or if you've never heard them, then it's not a revisit, then you can head up to focusonmetal.net. And right there on the homepage, you should see links to take you to each one of the individual Kerrang! episodes. And of course, you should be able to find all of those on iTunes as well. So I'm not sure how all this is going to work out for 2017, because of course, we're calling it a 2017 Kerrang! magazine project, and we really have the intention of getting all of it in in one single year for once, but like I said, I don't know, we're, we're like, what, three, four weeks away from uh, 2018, and still we've got plenty of ground to cover. I've got another interview that Richie just sent with another major player in the Kerrang! story. Great interview with that guy. And uh, then I know there's a few other people that are on the list as well, because as he's been going along, the people he's been talking to have been giving him contacts to talk to other people. So there's still... There's still potentially a lot of stuff in the pipeline for us to get to, so I just don't know if we're going to be able to get it all in this year because you also you add into that the fact that beyond just Kerrang! stuff, we got some other great stuff to bring you between now and the year end as well. And, you know, I know you're thinking, well, geez, well, this, you know, 2018, but just to remind you, you know, those guys, you know, if you've been here for a while with us, you know that come year end, then we usually take off like January and just kind of enjoy because uh, you know we've been plugging through all the way through the fall and the holidays and all that bullshit and uh, once we kind of get over that hump it's uh it's time to maybe take a little bit of relaxation so we do just like our summer break and all that do like to take a few weeks off and recharge the battery before charging back into focus on metal so with all that talking about Kerrang and this and that, I know you're thinking, well, who the hell are you guys talking to this week? Well, this week got a very cool guest, Dante Benuto. I know every time I say the name Dante, I always think of the Clerks movie. I don't know, my own problem. But anyways, yep, Dante Benuto, guy was with uh, with Record Mirror, and I think he did a little bit of stuff with Sounds. He was with Kerrang. We'll get into a little bit of Raw Magazine with him as well, because he was involved with that. But basically, this guy has been a lifetime music industry veteran, and now he's working for the labels. He's done A&R stuff and uh, definitely, uh, like I said, one of these guys that's been around for a long time, seen a lot of stuff and has a really good sense of what Kerrang! meant in the time frame that our project is focusing on. So I think you get a good sense of that time period in listening to Richie's talk with Dante. And uh, and you know what? I think there's no better time to kick things off than uh, right now. Turn it over to Richie and Dante Benuto. Hello, Dante. Yeah, it's Richie here from Focus on Metal. How are you? I'm well. How's yourself? I'm good. You in, you're in the UK, obviously. I'm in London, where I've always been. So, yes, I've not moved very far. Yeah, I'm um, just outside of Boston. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good place. 
Yeah, um, I'm from Ireland, though. You can probably guess from my accent. Yes, yeah. that's a good place to be from. What I want to talk about a lot is Kerrang. So do, do, you, do you want to just jump straight straight in? Yeah, good for me. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Happy to discuss Kerrang. Okay, so, so Dante, what sort of journalistic background did you have before you got the job in Kerrang? Well, um, I was one of those people that, you know, loved music and was never really sure how to find a job, or even if I could find a job, you know, working with music. So I explored a few different uh, different avenues and eventually ended up uh, doing a uh, degree in media studies at the Polytechnic of Central London. And within that three-year course, they, they, they found you kind of job placements during your summer holiday. So happily, um, I, was, I, w- I was given a job placement working on, the, on, on, on a music magazine that wasn't, um, that wasn't Kerrang! It was a magazine called Record Mirror that was actually quite a pop magazine. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a pop magazine back in the, in the day. And, um, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I really enjoyed writing about music and obviously it connected me with music, which I loved. And I was able, although it was kind of a pop magazine, they let me kind of cover some rock for for the magazine, so I ended up going to I remember going to to, to New York with White Snake, my first trip to New York. I guess that would have been. So I really I really enjoyed it, and um and and that really got me involved with rock journalism. So when I left, when I finished my course, I was already really working as a rock journalist as a freelance, and then I was able to get a, a full time position after that. So uh, I just, I guess the answer I just want I just wanted to find a way of being connected to music and and journalism was something like that I, I really enjoyed and found like, I found I could do. And I still write every day to this day because I work on the, in a record company so I'm writing you know, biogs and press releases and all sorts of sleeve notes so it's, it's, it's a skill that I'm pleased I have Yeah, now how old were you when you worked with uh, Record Mirror? I guess I would be in my sort of late teens, early twenties, because I'd, I'd, I'd been through, I had been to university, which I didn't really like. I started doing a history degree and left that. I didn't find it too dull. Then I, then I picked up on the media studies thing. So I guess I would be probably in my probably late teens, early twenties by that point when I, when I started. And uh, obviously, given that was sort of the early sort of around the sort of late seventies, early eighties. It was quite an exciting time to be involved uh, with music. There was, there was an awful, awful lot going on, particularly, I guess, on the American music scene, where the whole, I guess, the whole sort of, a, there was, in England, you had a new wave of British, British heavy metal in the UK, and in America, you had the sort of beginnings of what, I guess, became the kind of the hair, the hair metal scene, and bands like Motley Crue and Wasp kind of coming up. So quite an exciting time, I think, to be involved with, with rock music, certainly. Yeah, and were you like a bona fide metalhead at the time? Um, you know what? The first record that I bought this, this was when I was at school. Again, pre-internet. How do you? How do? You, and I didn't have any older, didn't have anyone in my family who was going to recommend music to me. I had to kind of find my own way. So I, I, the, I, I kind of I bought a record by Steely Dan. Was the first record I bought a record called The Royal Scam. So we really got out actually, and that was kind of like a bit heavy and a bit not heavy. It was kind of, it, 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 it took that middle path, you know, music. And I realized that the, he- the bits I loved on the record were the heavier bits, not the kind of lighter bits or the jazzier bits, you know. So 
so I, I then just found found a way, you know, by hook or by crook, of trying to find out more about heavier music, which led me back through, you know, rock's glorious history. Much harder to do then because I was writing letters to people like Jeff Barton saying, Jeff, can you recommend something? And the one, the turning point for me really came when I started buying Sounds magazine in the late 70s because then I discovered, you know, Jeff Barton and Pete Makovsky and, you know, Dave Lewis and some great writers and Sylvie Simmons, of course, some great writers about rock. And so I really knew that, that, so that, for me, that was like an ed- and that was like an education reading about, and I got to know more about the music that way. So, I, I mean, I, I just wanted to be—I just wanted to immerse myself in it, and you know, I, I, I just did everything I could to learn about rock music and connect myself with it. And yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, I still love it to this day. I'm not, it's, I'm not, my passion's not diminished. But obviously, then there, there was something I guess in those days, you know, quite exciting about discovering bands and hearing them for the first time and now it's so easy to hear music you just you know it's a click of a computer but then you had to kind of work for it and that was almost that discovery was almost more was almost more pleasurable and more meaningful because you had to put some work in to get there yeah now was there any particular writers at the time that you really looked up to like the, the, the way that they wrote Yes, well, there was. I'd say there was. There was one by miles was Jeff Barton, because Jeff and I. It had whenever I read a review by Jeff, he and I had pretty similar taste. It sort of turned out, so I knew if he liked it, I would definitely like it. And through Jeff, I probably connected with Cerny Kiss. I would say Rush. I would say Triumph. You know, all that all that kind of Canadian American sort of larger than life arena rock, which Jeff sort of loved. Um, sticks include definitely you know, so, so so Jeff to me was an, an essential read I also really liked Pete Makovsky who was working for you know Pete, Pete was working for the sounds at the time and um, he introduced me to a lot of stuff as well particularly a band called, called Detective that first time I still love that first time I remember Pete reviewing that and Rainbow Pete wrote a lot but he was tight with Richie Blackmore so he wrote a lot about Rainbow again again the group I, I really loved and of course as fate would have it I ended up working with both Jeff and with Pete over the years so people that I had looked up to and admired I ended up working with yeah and did you try and get a job in sounds at all or which or did you try um, and was Kerrang next from Record Mirror well, interesting, because Record, Record Mirror was in the same publishing company as both Sounds and Kerrang. So when I went into, when I joined Record Mirror, my instant thought was, I'm happy to have a, I'm happy to be here, but actually I'd love to work on Sounds or, or Kerrang, you know. So I kind of made some inquiries internally at the company, and it was kind of made clear to me that Kerrang and Sounds were, were those, those two magazines were, were related, the same people wrote, you know, Kerrang who wrote Sounds. Um, but they pretty much wanted to do that themselves, and I was I should really stay on on Record Mirror. And then fate, you know, as often, often sometimes in, in life, you know, fate deals you a hand. Um, and I was dealt a very strange hand in the sense that when I was trying to you know, move off Record Mirror, um, there was a there was a, there was a strike in the NUJ. I was a member of the of a, you know, National Union of Journalists. There was a strike, and we were all called all called out. So we all we were all down pens or typewriters, and we sort of left, you know, left our jobs and went out went out and strike. And then it was made clear to me that because I was actually un, under under a traineeship, I didn't have a full job at the time. But if I if I downed pen, I'd be fired. So the NUJ said to me, "You've got no choice. You're going to have to work because otherwise you're going to lose your job." So so I was then because no one was working on Kerrang, they said to me, well, look, can you, can you just go and do some work on Kerrang? So, although I felt incredibly guilty about, you know, so I, I, I sided with my colleagues, you know, I was very loyal to my colleagues in the strike. I had no choice. I would have just been fired. So I really hadn't, I felt I was in a, back into a corner. 
bad person, but of course I was, it was nice for me to move on to Kerrang, because names I'd always wanted to work on. That was issue number eight, I think it was, I started working there. And of course, I never, I never really left for the next best part of 10 years, you know, so I, that, that was the thing, it was a bit, it was just that, that strike. Yeah, now you were hired as a writer in the beginning. Uh, do you remember what your first yeah. piece was for the magazine? My first piece? Um, good question. Uh, <laughs> Um, I remember. I remember for when, when I when I worked on Record Mirror, I remember my first. I was given the singles to review, and I, and and happily, there was there was a really good Crocus track called Bedside Radio that was the, that was in that pile I got given of seven inches. So I remember making that my single of the week. So that was my first Record Mirror thing. I really remember. And for Kerrang, you know, I'm I'm not sure. I I can remember the exact first thing I did, but I, because I, I I was given the task of staff writer. I probably did many things as my first thing. It was probably like I just got involved, and there were so few people working on Kerrang! at that time. We didn't, even, didn't really even have a record player. We were, we, we were in someone else's office, and I had to wait until the two other people went out to lunch to play records. It was, it was, it was really only me, you know, um, doing stuff in those early days. And the editor of Record Mirror kind of was overseeing it a little bit as well. Um, but, I, but gradually, obviously, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we built up our staff and, um, and my job title changed from staff writer to deputy editor over the years. And, uh, but I can't remember the exact first moment. No, I can't remember the exact first thing, but it was, I'd say it was probably more than one thing because there were so few people doing stuff that we were all writing a lot of stuff on the magazine at that point. Yeah, one of the things I'm finding as I talk to a lot of the people, like, I started buying the magazine in like 85 or 86. And I always thought right. that yeah. everybody was hired by, as employees of Kerrang. And I'm since finding out that there wasn't that many staff there, that there was a lot of freelance. Yeah, I mean, I think, it was, I think I was, at one point, I think I was the only actual person working on Kerrang. There was, oh, there, was, there was an ad guy, I think. There was me and an ad guy, I think, were the only two people who probably were just dedicated to Kerrang. Everyone else was kind of floating around doing multiple jobs and multiple tasks. So, so I mean, it's one of those things that definitely, uh, given how influential the magazine became and given how, you know, given how expected it was, it, was, it, 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 it really started in quite a small way. But what, what was great about Kerrang was that everyone who got involved with it it became a mission. It, it, was just, it was such a passion with everyone to think at last there's a magazine that we're working on that we'd love to buy because it's talking about rock. And so we, we had such a lot of fun it, before, obviously, you know, computers and whatever else. We had to, had to kind of find out a lot of stuff over, over the phone. But, you know, we, we, we had such a lot of fun writing it. So I think anyone that was, 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 was working on Krang, whether they were full-time or part-time or whatever, was, was, fully, was fully in, was fully committed to it. Because they, they felt they were kind of breaking new ground, which I guess the magazine really was. I mean, it was, you know, it was color photography. It was dedicated to music we all loved. Had a fantastic sense of humor. It had personality writers. You know, it was a, it was great to be involved in it. And I think I have to say that, you know, I think a turning point in the magazine was when Malcolm, you know, joined, which was I guess fairly early on. I know Malcolm. Malcolm and I both worked on Mercury actually. Um, and Malcolm's such a powerhouse writer. I mean, he really, really, you know, unstoppable writer, and and, and had such a magnificent knowledge. He he was Google before. Google, you know. Um, but I think Malcolm's Malcolm's sheer work work ethic and commitment and knowledge was was crucial to building up correct. He did all the new stuff, you know, in magazine before there was an internet and it was on the phone the whole day and typing you know, on the phone and typing at the same time, kind of thing. You know, it, it's, um, yeah, it really made a big difference in the magazine. Yeah, one of the things I love talking to you guys about um, is the access you had to the bands because now a lot of the interviews are done they're done over the phone, done over Skype. You you guys went on on the road with the band. Like well, right. I'll tell you the thing. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the reason for that. I'll tell you what happened there was because I can't tell you the amount of times that we phoned up 
a record company and said, could you send us the new album by so-and-so? And they'd say, who? So we knew more about the band sometimes than the people at the label did. Because it was talking about sometimes quite, quite some talking about something that's quite underground rock here, you know. So, um, um, so we'd often, so we'd, we'd think, oh, well, hey, what would we do? So we'd, so we'd make connections. So we often spoke to management because we knew management was fully committed and fully knowledgeable. So we built up a relationship, and that's how we kind of got to the band, was more through the management side of things because we were kind of forced to go that route because, you know, um, some of these bands had never been to the UK before, and there wasn't, there wasn't that kind of, you know, unless you were a rock fan, you, you may not know, you know, that you had that somewhere in the mighty empire of your label, there was this small band that we all loved, you know, and we wanted to cover. And so we, we ended up, trying, we, we tried to go as direct as we could, yeah. Yeah, so is there any particular road trips that stand out for you that were memorable when you were with Kerrang? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, there's many, because obviously I, you know, I, I, I travelled, because there was so much going on in America at that point, because of the, the whole West Coast scene was booming, that I, I, we, were, we were all probably in America a lot. I mean, obviously Ross Halfin was in America the whole time, I think, in that area, because Ross was travelling with bands all the time, taking great photographs. I think the one, I mean, I couldn't name many, but I'm going to pick one simply because of, um, it was, me and Ross travelled a lot together, and uh, I remember one, one year... Um, we, we, were talk, we were talking at the office and he said, oh, by the way, there's, um, I believe ZZ Top do like an annual New Year's Eve show in, in, you know, in the, around, around Texas, Arizona, that sort of neck of the woods. Um, do you, why don't, why don't we, why don't we go and let's, let's make it a Kerrang front cover, you know, sort of thing. So I said, oh, that's brilliant. I love ZZ Top. We could do that. This is about 1982, 83, I would say. And um, and we called the record company, and they said, look, there's no new album coming out, so we really can't afford, we can't justify paying for your trip. Which I guess is fair enough. And um, so Ross and I said, well, let's just go. Let's just pay ourselves and go. You know, we might, it's New Year's Eve, let's, have some, let's go and have a good time and w- with the band that we all love. So we paid our own way, and we connected with the band, um, you know, somewhere. El Paso or whatever, wherever we ended up going to meet, meet up with them. And um, when we told, when we said to the band, oh, by the the band asked us about that, and we said, oh, no, we just paid to be here. They said, okay, from this moment on, everything is on us. We'll, we'll completely take care of you. So, so we spent we spent a few days in their company, traveling traveling around some interesting parts of America where they were really huge at that point. And this is just before Eliminator came out, so they hadn't quite gone into that kind of MTV phase. There was still that, you know, there was still the there was still the the, the other kind of ZZ Top, I guess, the pre MTV ZZ Top. And it was an amazing experience. And they were so hospitable and so nice, and gave us great access. And, was, and you know, Texan hospitality is obviously legendary. We met some really colourful characters. Um, I remember there's what the, uh, there's many famous people that we, the many interesting people we met on that particular trip. You know, that was, uh, and uh, and we put them on the front cover, and I wrote the piece, and Ross took the pictures. So we so we did all that. But so I think that simply because it wasn't really planned, we did something, and and the band were so nice they looked after so I, but there was many but there was many many uh, trips I, th- I think going to uh, the York to interview Richie Blackmore was, was a thrill because I'd not met Richie Blackmore before and I, I thought he was a really funny great guy you know and uh, I mean, everyone I interviewed I, I pretty much thought was really good because I think with, with most rock with most rock artists most rock musicians their first love is the music they've got into they've got it for the music so so you always had a, had a common bond and most people were really 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 great and actually you know Kerrang built up a good level of respect pretty quickly and I think our voice was respected all over the world at that point and I think Kerrang still is an incredibly strong brand having lunch with someone from Kerrang today funny enough and it's a very strong brand and I think it can still it can still grow actually as a brand um, but it was respected and and, um, and we had a, we had great fun doing it so yes I, I, and I, I think what was good about also that period of Kerrang was the fact that it was very accepted if you went 
to Texas or you went to New York or you went, like Mick Wall did, to Rock in Rio. It was all very jealous of that. Um, you kind of wrote about your experience of the trip. It wasn't like you just did a and a with the band. You, it, was, it was acceptable that you would actually filter that through your, through, through your own eyes, through your own personal experience. But and I, I, I love that kind of journalism where you where it, it, it wasn't objective, it was subjective, but, it, but music is subjective. Everyone has a different opinion about it. So I, I wanted to hear that person's opinion. I wanted to be with them. And Madison Square Garden, which I did go to with Whitesnake, actually, another, another great trip, you know. I wanted to be with them in Rio. I wanted to be with them in New York with Richie Blackmore interviewing him. I wanted, I wanted that experience. And we, and we, we all wrote like that on Koran. We, we all put ourselves into, into, into the journalism. And, and that tradition, I think, got, was, at some point, got kind of lost a bit. I, I still love that kind of ride, that kind of Hunter S. Thompson style of ride. I really love. Yeah, what, what about a road trip that was memorable for the wrong reasons? Where it just didn't work um, out. Does any and I've gotten answers from some of the guys on these, and they're like, "Oh my god." <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, because because I was, I mean, I because of my role as deputy editor, I pretty much was was subbing, you know, the whole magazine. I was reading the whole magazine. I was going to the printers with Malcolm most of the time and passing the whole magazine. So, so I probably travelled a bit less at some point than the other guys did. did. And I, I must admit, I can't. I mean, I probably did have some. Experience. I mean, if they're, if they're a bad experience, it was more because you know because of 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 of, of the way that the transport system worked more than the artists. I always found the artists very hospitable, and 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 and, and we got with them well. So I can't remember. There was I had no terrible experience of uh, being with a, with a band I can think of, and I still, and I actually still I still never have had that to this band. I work bands all the time now, and uh, you know. I, I tend to be able to connect on a level with rock bands because uh, so I, I hope I'm on the, I'm on their wavelength. So yeah. I, I mean I, I I do now I mean I believe the first ever trip which Kerrang paid for was when we sent Howard Johnson to to interview Accept in Darkest Germany somewhere um, and uh, then we put them on the front cover quite early around I guess around Restless and Wild probably time and I believe that was quite a horrendous trip for Howard more because it was endless trains and ferries but we couldn't afford more at the time we couldn't afford to fly him <laughs> we couldn't afford to fly him over you know um, that that's how it started but that was our first ever pay trip was an Accept front cover which which I I met the guitarist in Accept Wolf Hoffman he remembered that. Actually, the other day when we met, and you see, remember the the sport from Kerrang. So, yeah. so those things meant something to the bands. They remembered them. You know, yeah. that someone had gone all that way. You know, made that effort to interview them. Yeah, you're on a road trip with a band, right? And you're thinking to yourself, was it difficult to say to yourself, should I put this in the story, or is this something that you know what goes on tour stays on tour? Did you ever find that um, dilemma? That's a very good question, actually, because I think that the issue with what, what happens with with, with rock, as I said, with rock bands, because I think, you know, we were all quite, we were all young in those days, and the bands were young, and we were on the same wavelength, and we had basically common experiences. You know, they got into they they played instruments, and we we were writers, you know, but we and often on these things there was a certain amount of alcohol involved, and a certain amount of bonding involved, and a certain amount of late nights involved. So there were moments whereby you know three o'clock in the morning in someone's hotel room, bottle of Jack, whatever, then off the guard drops. Um, and, um, and so, yes, I would, I think there are moments where, but I remember with Gary Moore, I was in Sweden with Gary Moore and, and he came to my hotel room in the early hours of the morning. We both had a lot to drink, I have to say, and we did an interview there, which when I played it back, I thought, oh, that's not going to be, I can't use that. So we did it again on the plane home. Um, <laughs> there are, there are, there are moments where you just think, actually that's, that's become just too, uh, too incoherent um, or too personal. So yes, I think you have to draw a line there because these guys, a lot of them, are, are our friends. 
And also the thing with, you know, with any magazine is it's all built on, the whole, our whole industry is built on personal relationship and reputation. So if you, if you, we, we never had the view of, oh, let's be sensationalist or let's write something that was nasty or people didn't want to read. Because that wasn't, that wasn't what rock's about. It wasn't the kind of people that we are. So we had great respect for the artists and we, we saw a lot of us as really good friends. So obviously our aim was to be truthful to ourselves as writers, but, we, but, but there, there, is, there, is, there, is a, there is a limit, I think. And I think if you respect people's privacy as well, then you, you kind of know where to draw the line. And I, and I can't really think of any instances where Kerrang! was ever printed something that, that, that we, didn't, we didn't think was right or we really believed or we checked our facts properly. You know, I, I, so I don't think ever, I can remember that ever really happening. Yeah, do you remember, like, uh, it had a definite English sense of humour, Kerrang! with the way it was written. It did. It had a sarcastic yes. sense of humour. And that mightn't yeah. transfer very well with a lot of American bands. Did you ever have any of the American labels or the bands say, you know, they didn't get it, the article that you wrote on? Um, <laughs> actually, um, uh, not really. I actually think that um, because at that point, you know, um, uh, the bands, I think with, with the advent of Kerrang, it really encouraged and allowed a lot of these bands to come and tour the UK because before that, who was really championing these bands, you know? And there was, there was, and that really helped. I think. So, so I think they pretty much got, got to grips with the English sense of humour, the English personality. And I mean, I mean, obviously there's a big cultural difference between Americans and English, and that's, which is quite good in a way. Um, but no, I never, I, I never felt there was a lack of understanding. If I, I, I think I think they all really enjoyed the fact that we had a sense of humour. We could be quite irreverent because, I, in, because the American magazines were much more like reading a press release compared to what Kerrang! was, which was really colourful. Sometimes, sometimes you know, some, sometimes um, you know, um, uh, yeah, it, it had a lot of personality. Let's put it that way in the magazine. There's a lot of personality journey. I think the Americans really, uh, people we knew really loved that about it, and they and they, they loved Ross Alfin's photographs, which were often taken in toilets and were and, and were, were amazing photographs. And again, really tapped into the, the colour of rock and the glory of rock and the lifestyle of rock. All the great things about rock were in his photographs. You know, because he was on the road with the band, he often those pictures that in the early hours of the morning or whenever. You know, if they were they were oh, let's stand against a brick wall for five minutes. But he, he he hung out to get those pictures. I was with him many times when he did that. You know, and so that was after that was, that was a lot of relationship building to get photographs to get that level of to get the level of access that Ross got doesn't come in five minutes. Or or with us and all with journalists too. You don't get the level of access straight away. You have to get to know people. People and people have to trust you. So I think we're always very mindful of, of our of our role in the business. And I think we always thought our role was to talk to fellow. We were we, we were like if you were a fan of rock and you couldn't you couldn't be on that road or you couldn't be talking to artists. We we were there for them. We were the conduit to people that the rock fans loved. And we, we took that very seriously. Our role in kind of getting that, getting that point of view across to the audience giving those people a voice to the audience that loved them and also and, and, and representing the fan a professional fan like representing the fan asking questions that the, the fans would like, to, would like to know about because we were fans ourselves you know so I think we took our roles you know not in a po-faced way but we took our roles quite, quite seriously in that respect yeah um, do you remember ever doing an interview yourself where the PR person maybe jumped in and stopped you asking a question or stopped the artist answering a question or, or the label actually wanted to hear the interview after you'd recorded it to make sure it was okay to be published? Um, no. Um, it was it was pretty much a given, in, and I think still, I believe still is, you know, that, uh, that you know, if you're given the chance to interview an artist, um, the artist can choose not to answer a question. You know, it's not completely up to them, and that's absolutely their prerogative. Um, but no, I, I never had a situation whereby a label said to me, I want, can I hear what you've done? There were a couple of times, I think, in with American bands, that 
the PR person sat in the room, but it was never intrusive, and I didn't have a problem with that particularly. I mean, just doing their job in a way, I suppose, really. So, um, but band, you know, rock, rock bands, normally, uh, rock bands. Sometimes people think rock bands can, are unintelligent or uninformed. I've always found it to be the opposite. I think rock bands can rock, rock bands can be very and fans actually. You know, all the people on Kerrang you mentioned are all pretty much university educated people. You know, Malcolm's Malcolm's a really really smart guy. You know. Yeah. Um, and so, so we 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 we, we love what music. We weren't stupid. So I think, that, and we found the, the artists the same. You know, so we, you could often have very intelligent and meaningful conversations. Someone like Blackie Lawless and Wasp, we interviewed many times, was incredibly well informed on most subjects. Ronnie James Dio, you know, these are very very interesting to talk to about almost any any subject really. Bruce Dickinson, you know, whoever really. These are these interesting conversations. Taking forget about the band, even just interesting people to speak to. So, so no. We never really had an issue with that, and I think I think we and we did respect our independence. So we were, we were never in the pocket of anybody, but and, and I don't, don't think journalism should be. Yeah, no, there was a lot of American uh, bands at the time. They were big on the image, and you know the the likes of Roth and all these guys, these larger than life characters. When you're uh, yeah. when you're interviewing them backstage or on the tour bus and whatever, when the lights are off, are you looking for the real person or are you looking for the persona that they have on stage? I think the situation uh, I found uh, um, with the artists that I you know, spoke to, particularly back in the era when, when, when you know, it was most of the musicians were wearing stage clothes, they were, they were, they were larger than life. They were, they were living a very hedonistic lifestyle. I never really found any, anyone putting putting on an act. I mean, you could argue. I mean, some of Alice Cooper, he does have a different persona on and off stage, but that, but that's part of what he does. You know, he, he you know, he's he's Vince Ferney and Alice Cooper. He's the, he's two sides of a coin. That's and he's you know he's you know if you interview him. As it, uh, you know, if you interview him, um, he's very intelligent and thoughtful. He plays, he plays the Alice Cooper role on stage. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, Kiss makeup was irrelevant. They were the same people, pretty much on and off stage, and you know, they had the same personality they had on stage, off stage. Um, and I really find being Motley Crue the same. So I no, really, pretty much we we want we wanted to we wanted to meet the real the real people, and we did. You know, um, and and that comes really, I think, from as I say, mainly from um, from hanging out a bit. I mean, the worst thing, the worst thing, I think, if you're a journalist, is probably, you know, you're one of ten people doing an interview. It's in a hotel room. You've got 35 minutes. Off you go. It's very hard sometimes to cut to cut to the chase and get the real character of the artist doing that. Which is why we we, we were much happier being in studios, you know, being on the road with bands, hanging out with bands, because that's when that's when you really can get to know people and that's when you can really start to do your job properly. You know, because you really you can and, and often just watching circumstances, seeing how things develop, how people react to things. And what I, what I found was, you know, if you if you if you if you hang out with bands and you keep your place, you know, you're not overbearing, you're respectful, you know, you become part of their world, they they kind of embrace you into it and they they, they, they just treat you like like it almost like you're not there in a way. Because because they aren't concerned about you being there, you know, and then you can start to see what really happens and the real the real people are, and that's where I think it becomes very exciting and very interesting from a fan's point of view as well. But um, that's part of the journalism job, I think, is really you know, is 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 cutting to the chase and you know getting getting beneath the outer layers and getting to the the real person. But I think with rock music, because it's, it's so from the heart and so from the emotions, you can, you can, you the the people and the music are the same. You know, you, they, they they are. It's all for real. It isn't it isn't it isn't fake. You know, and I love that about rock. I think I think the authenticity, the credibility, the reality of it, and what what the fans love. It's not bullshit. You know, it's real. Yeah, did you guys ever sit it's down, fine. the writers, and 
you know, you, you said yourself, you did the guys doing eight interviews one after the other and think to yourself, right, I'm going to try and ask him different questions than the other seven guys. Or is yeah. there, was there a way to avoid that at all? Um, well, I think the thing is what, what you would find, I think is, um, um, is that, you know, I think with, with, if a band is doing interviews or an artist doing interviews all day, they are going to be asked a lot of the same questions. And that's inevitable because, you know, sometimes people only have a short period of time. I think the difference is, and I think what was good about Karang, because Karang for most of these bands was considered to be a major interview, we were very rarely, I can't remember ever being in that situation where I was kind of wheeled in and wheeled out. You know, we pretty much got, I, I would always say to them, G -g give me the last interview, give me the one at six o'clock. So I knew I'd have more time. The band could have a drink and get a bit more relaxed. And, and, and I, know I knew most of the bands already. So when I, so when I met them, we, we, there was no ice to be broken. We were already we already knew each other. I'd interviewed them probably many times before. But we can just get on with talking about stuff that we were interested in. And I think that because we all had a, a certain amount of, um, of knowledge, which we hadn't studied, we just, if, you know, if you love rock, it goes in really quickly. You know everything easily. You know, you can have a proper conversation and they realize you, you, knew, you knew your staff, you know, and you could ask about things that unreleased tracks or titles that you knew. And sometimes they'd say to us, how did you, how did you know that? You know, and we said, well, we're, we're fans. <laughs> you know, it's, our job, it's our job to know that. You know, we're interested. You know, so, so I think that's, I think it's a very natural thing. I think if you're, to be good at that job, you've got to be, love the music and you've got to, you've got to embrace the music, be in it 24-7 and love the lifestyle of the music as well. And then I think it becomes a, becomes a natural thing. Did you become friends with any of the bands, or was it friendly with them? Uh, yeah, most of them, I, I would say. Uh, over the, most of them over the years. I mean, obviously, particularly with Kiss, I interviewed Kiss so many times, and was you know was pretty much the guy who did every interview on Karan, because I wanted to. I really, I really love the band, still do. Um, but in Man of War, I did most stuff on them. I really like Man of War, you know. So they were, I think the main thing we all we all found we all we all had our kind of pet pet bands that we all liked and. Although you could argue, and we did debate this at the time, is it good for the same person to speak to the same band? Because shouldn't we have a different, or perhaps more critical view? I think our feeling was, well, look, we're all, you know, we, we all know what we're doing. It's better to have someone there who knows everything about the band and actually is a fan. Because then if the record isn't good for everyone, at least, at least you'll know why it isn't good, because you know all the other stuff that is good. So we, we always thought it was better to have people there who knew what they were talking about. And we would never set someone up with someone who didn't like what they did just for the hell of it. That makes no sense at all. Because, you know, rock's a broad church. There's lots of stuff in it. We can't like it all. So and, and there's people like Dave Dixon who pretty much, you know, championed Hanoi Rocks. There was Mark Putterford who loved ACDC and did a lot of work on them. You know, Malcolm did things like, you know, um, Merciful Fate. You know, he was very influential. He, he loved them. So, so we, we all found artists that we come naturally connected with and gravitated to. And we tended to, let's say, Russell did all the Southern rock stuff pretty much because he loved that and loves it to this day. So I think I think people's natural passions were, were allowed to blossom within the magazine. Yeah. Did Did you ever try and get to talk to the musicians that weren't offered the drummer or the bass player? Like if it's Kiss, you're going to get Gene and Paul. Did you like want? Did you say like I want Bruce Kulick or I want Eric Carr? Did anything ever like, um, if, come up? Um, I think there were. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, 
because again, I think again, you know, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but I just I think Kerrang was was respected enough that we would always get the, the the main player in any group. You know, I think if it was Motley Crue, we'd get we'd 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 we'd, we'd get we'd get Nicky or Tommy, you know, or or Vince. We would get all Kiss, we'd get Gene and Paul. I mean. Well, that'd be nice, nice to go to more. Um, we get Jim and Paul. So I, I think I can't remember ever thinking, you know, we didn't get the person that we needed to speak to. I, I think it was almost a given that, you know, White Snake has to be David Coverdale, you know, so it's a it had to be Angus and Malcolm, you know. So I, I think we always got, we always got the person because the crying interviews were, were big enough, and often front cover pieces with these bands, and they were big enough interviews that, you know, um, that, that you, 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 you need the voice of the band effectively to make sense of it. In my maiden's case, Steve Harris or Bruce, you know, we always, we always got that, we always got those people. So that was never an issue with Krang, I can remember now. Yeah, and do you remember ever sitting across from an, a musician and he's, you're doing an interview and you're looking at him and he's like, he's just talking complete bollocks because I'll be honest with you, um, Dante, two, I, the six people I've interviewed, two of them named the same person as the worst interview they ever did. Oh, interesting. Who was that? Errol Slick. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I've never met Slick, actually. Yeah. And I think it was oh, okay. Stefan Shirazi and I think it might have been, I think it might have been Howard Johnson said, both of them right. the same guy, yeah. Said he Stefan said he was he was sitting across from him and he was like, I'm just he's just talking bollocks. He said he got the tape, he threw it in the bin on the way out, called Jeff and really? said, Jeff, there's nothing. I can't get anything out of this. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Wow. I mean, I must admit, I mean, I guess, I guess sometimes, you know, that, that does happen, I, I, I suppose. Um, I never had that experience, no. Um, I think the thing is, I, so I was, because of my role on, because of my role on, on the magazine, where I was, I was doing a lot of production work on the magazine, uh, because I wasn't writing uh, as much as some of the other guys, I tend to pick my interviews more carefully. So if I was doing something, it was something I probably really wanted to do, which meant I probably knew the band or really liked the band already. So I never really had that experience. I, I always, found everyone very, you know, interesting and helpful generally and um, always came away with what I really needed, you know, and if you didn't, you could always follow up with them after that, which was normally normally fine. So, uh, so no, I, I, I didn't have that experience, but it's interesting you mentioned it's the same, the same person. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Did you ever do um, a live review or an album review and um, you, didn't, you didn't like the album or the, the live show and you heard back from the band that, like, they really wanted to go after you a little bit? Um, um, I don't think, I'm sure man, that, that probably has happened to, uh, to, to certainly, it didn't actually happen to me. I can't think of any example of that, where that happened in, in my case. It wasn't because I was all, I was, you, you were always nice about albums, but I hope that, I think, I think with any, any, any album view, as long as the criticism is, is well informed and it's kept constructive, I, I don't think bands have a problem with that. I think they have a problem with it when people are ill-informed and just don't like the genre. If you don't like the genre, then you recently review in the record. I mean, because if you don't like rock, what you review a rock album? If you do like rock and you have an opinion about rock, that's fair enough because you're absorbed in, in, it, you're in the world that you know what you're talking about. I've never had a band have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, one of the guys I want to ask about that I think he interviewed was, did you ever interview Michael Shanker? I interviewed Michael Shanker once only, and actually quite uh, quite early on in my uh, in my in my life on Kerrang. I remember it was on the on the first album, I guess. Yeah, first album. Um, and I went. He was manager of Peter Mensch at the time, and I remember we got a train up to I think it was Sheffield um, City Hall. He was playing, and I and I interviewed him. I think at that after that show. Yeah, and. Um, 
Um, can't remember the, all the details, but I, I, again, I had no issue with Michael Schenker. I, I, I loved him as a guitarist, and that was such a great band you put together there. I think it was Cozy Powell on drums, if I remember correctly. It was mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. No, I, I, I did that once, really, at one experience in Michael, and it was, for me, it was a positive one. Yeah, okay. And you obviously got on well with Ronnie James Dio then, as well. I loved Ronnie James Dio. I did the did one. I think I did the first Kerrang interview with him and Vivian Campbell um, when they came over to support the release the first time. I had to, I was blown away by that first album. I had no idea he was going to make that kind of a record because um, who knew, you know, what he was going to make under the Dio banner. But what a classic! And um, Vivian Campbell was. I'm, I'm really pleased that Vivian's kind of re-embraced his Dio his Dio era because the records he was on those three or four albums he was on in Dio time were. Fabulous, and he was great on them. So I'm really pleased he's kind of you know he's he's, he's accepted that was a, a, a really good part of his life. You know, I always found Ronnie a brilliant guy and um, loved speaking with him. He's just such a nice person as well, you know. And obviously yeah. made just great great music and and what a singer. I mean, you, you know, he never I've never seen him do a better gig. It was amazing. Yeah. What about Ozzy? Did you interview Ozzy at all? I did definitely. I'm actually my first experience also was was fine up when I was on record record mirror um, because he just he was just he just done the first uh, Blizzard of Oz album. He was just doing a his first ever headline UK tour, and I was asked by record mirror if I'd like to go and interview him and go and see the very first show. I believe they had done like a secret warm up gig the night before under a different name. But but the show I went to see, which was at the old Glasgow Apollo, I think it was, um, was technically his first you know first ever Blizzard of Oz show with you know Randy Rhodes and Lee, Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley and Ozzy. So I that was my first encounter with Ozzy, and of course with Sharon, who was looking after, him, wasn't married to him, was looking after him at the time for the label. That's when I first met Sharon as well, and um, it was just great to great to be at that gig, um, see that first show, and realise how amazing Randy Rhodes was, um, incredible uh, musician. And um, I've still got the sweatshirt I was given by Sharon after that gig. It doesn't fit sadly anymore, but I just found it actually the other day. Um, and so, so Aussie, I, I obviously I was, a, you know, I was having, you know, obviously everyone was an Aussie fan at that point because we all love, we all love Sabbath, you know. And I think it was, he was just a colourful character. So after that, when I was on Kerrang, I interviewed Aussie many times. I went to Hawaii with Aussie, I think, I think once. I'm correct, near Ross went to Hawaii to interview him over there. He was, an, he was an amazing interview um, and really funny. And a dream, really, because I remember in Hawaii, um, we were waiting to do the interview, and it got quite late in the evening. And he he said, "Oh, he said, um, okay, let's do it." And he he went to the bar, I think, and, and got the most expensive bottle of brandy he could find. And we took, went up to his bedroom, and I think Sharon had gone to bed, and um, just did the interview there. And it was hilarious, and it went on went went on as long as the bottle of brandy lasted, and then he kind of just fell asleep, and I kind of you know made him comfortable and, let, and left, you know. Um, and I wrote this interview. Um, I thought it was really, really good. And it was on the front cover of Kerrang! And I and, um, was really happy with it. I thought it was a hilarious piece, you know. And then I got a call from the publisher saying, you must be mad. You think you're going to print this, this interview? And I said, well, why? So it's, it's contentious, rude, all the things I thought were great about it, you know. So he said, you've got to rewrite the whole thing. And um, so... The magazine was about to go to press, so I had to literally go, this is like holding the front page, I had to go to the printers and literally rewrite the piece as the presses were waiting to roll, you know. Um, I guess <laughs> it was the original piece, was, I, 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 I quite like what I, what I rewrote, but the original was really good. 
Yeah. So that was that was never printed. So yes, that, so I had many tough experiences about the yeah. years. Yes. What about the, what about the Def Leppard guys? Did you have much of an experience yes. with them? Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I liked them a lot, and um, really was a big fan of Leopard. If I was, it was interesting because I got, I, I was asked to go and do an interview. To, you know, sadly, um, after Rick Allen's arm um, had been amputated in that very sad and tragic car accident, um, the band had gone back in the studio in Holland, and I was, I went over, I went over. Me and Ross went over with Peter Mensch actually again, and did the first interview post the accident. You know, uh, with 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 Rick with Joe, which is quite emotional because obviously it was, the whole thing was still quite recent, you know, and um, but the fact that he you know, made such an amazing recovery and could and could be in the band on his own. They were thinking of two drummers at one point, I believe, you know, but he was able to do it on his own. It was an amazing thing. And and um, so that was a good piece because obviously there was a lot to talk about and, you know, Joe Elliott's a great guy. It was very honest and that again, that again, that again became a front cover piece on Kerrang! And we had that as an exclusive. So uh, I was really pleased to be, really pleased to do that interview. Yeah, so, yeah, yes, I interviewed him many times. Yeah. What about Steve Clark? Did you did you interview him at all? Yeah, I did. I met Steve Clark. I probably did interview him at some point. Um, uh, I didn't get to know Steve Clark. My man and Mick Wall and him were very close as a writer. I didn't get to know him to that extent. But I think on that on that trip, I went over. I think Steve Clark drove me and Peter back to the airport. Um, so I, I, yeah, I knew Steve Clark a little. He was a lovely, lovely man. Um, not even a man, he was young, you know, and that's, 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 again, a great shame. I mean, I mean, these are the, this is the sadness of it, you know, you get to know people, and then, then you know, there's, there was, there's some very unfair things happen in life, and that, that's reflected in rock music too. And, um, and uh, yeah, so there's some, that was very sad, and that band's been through quite a lot, so good luck, good luck to Steph Leppard, it's most amazing that they're, uh, they're the force that they are, and good luck to them. Yeah, did you ever interview any of the, the Van Halen brothers or, or David Lee Roth? You know, that's the one That's the one band I didn't. So I think if you said to me, oh, there, is there anyone you'd like to interview? And I did interview Ted Nugent, who I'm, I'm a fan of, and I really enjoy talking to Ted. I did interview David Lee Roth, but I'm, I'm sure it would have been one of the easiest interviews you could ever do. I turn on the tape machine and just let him talk would have been the thing. But I remember going to see Van Halen uh, when they first came over, you know, I'm with Black Sabbath, and then when they headlined The Rainbow, which was in the late 70s. And I have to say, um, I wasn't the writer then, um, but I'd never seen a show like that. I'd never seen a band like that before that was an absolute game changer for me someone playing guitar like that someone playing drums with their sticks on fire a frontman like david lee roth with this whole showmanship element i've never seen that before so to me that was very very exciting like yeah and so it's i i, I definitely wish i had interviewed um, a member of van halen yes yeah what sort of relationship did you have like with the, the metallica boys or, or dave mustaine or the anthrax guys did you know them well at all uh, yeah, all, all all of them. I mean, not not so much Mustaine, but definitely definitely knew the Anthrax guys very well. Still very very still friendly with Scott Ian's. You know, still see him a lot. Um, Metallica, yes, because we were the um, the Kerrang was pretty much the first magazine over here anyway that basically embraced what they were doing. And Xavier Russell was definitely the guy that picked up on it first. I remember Xavier gave me some an early cassette which had some Metallica tracks on it, which I love. And um, and so we, I remember I was in the office when he did the first interview with James Hetfield on the phone. I remember, I remember very well. And so, so and and obviously that it's hard to look back on it now. But you know, when when we first heard Metallica, you know, we not. I mean, I'd heard Diamond Head before, and, I, and that was obviously quite quite heavy and quite fast and quite powerful for its time. But I'd, we'd not heard what Metallica were doing before. That was really different. And it took a while for everyone, I think, be they rock fan or not rock fan, to really get up to speed with what Metallica were actually doing. But but we were there from the beginning, and Zayda was definitely the guy that flew the flag early on. And um, 
and obviously we had a great relationship and, and Lars was in London a lot hanging out to with Shades at the Krang office so we got to know Lars very well and I drove him to the Reading Festival one year um, spilled beer in my car I remember uh, but uh, but it was it was uh, we had a very good relationship with all of them and still so, I got like, they invited me to come and see them in London when they played recently so yeah we have a very good relationship with Metallica and um, I think Kerrang was really instrumental in, in in helping Metallica's success because they were on it from we were on it from the very early on from the beginning with them and saw greatness in in that band. Yeah. Now, now how did you end up becoming the deputy editor of the, of Kerrang? Well, I think when I've, I was a you know, staff writer, and I think and and um, doing all the work on the magazine. So I, I, I guess you know at some point rather it was considered that a promotion was required to reflect the fact I was doing a lot of the work on the magazine, including on the production side, and and then commissioning, of course, commissioning all the work, you know, on the magazine, pretty much. Um, so I got given that that role, but you know, I, with Kerrang, from from the minute I joined to the minute I left, I just got as involved as I could. You know, it wasn't like it's that was not my job title. Everyone on Kerrang just got stuck in. You know, it was, we were all part of the same thing and we all got on with each other very well. And we all had a laugh. We all loved going to the same gigs. And, you know, and, we were, and the great thing about Kerrang was that because we were, we were working there in an era when there wasn't an immediate competitor, we, we were, and our publisher, who was a lovely guy, but was, a, was, a, was of, of more advanced years, um, just basically left us alone. And long, and, and long as the magazine sold well, which it did, um, they left us, so we, we had a lot of freedom, and I think the greatest thing about that was, which you, you're never going to get now, was the fact that because there wasn't there wasn't the competition, the people kind of bought Kerrang, whoever was on the front cover, obviously wanted to make great front covers. We could we could take a chance, you know. We put Wasp on the cover from the very beginning, and before the album came out, if I remember. So we kind of picked bands we thought, oh, that's great, let's go with it. So Kerrang could actually be instrumental in helping to develop a band and break a band in the UK by taking those chances. And it's much harder to justify that now because there is a more competition. The whole world of print and media has changed anyway. So very, but so that was that was almost like a glorious moment where you really could do something that was a bold move. Sometimes we got it wrong, but I hope we got it right most of the time. And if, if we got it wrong, it, we, you know, we did it from the heart anyway. We, we, we did it. We did it because we, we were passionate about trying to do something that wasn't just reflecting what was going on. That could be finding the new stars of tomorrow as well, which I think I think journalism is about too. You know, so um, so we were very fortunate to be working on Crane. I think in that particular moment. Yeah, and w- one of the things Malcolm said in the in the interview I did, the first interview, he said you and Jeff never really got on. What what was the main uh, issue I, between the two of you? I think what it was was, and that's and it, it's, it's an interesting question actually, because um, well, first of all, let me say that Jeff and I get on, get on very well now, and uh, I have a lot of respect for Jeff. Um, the reason I think for that was because of um, you know I'd look, I'd looked up to Jeff for many many years. I'd been you know, I'd read his stuff. I'd even sometimes gone and stood outside the office in Covent Garden, not that I was working, I was at college or something, just to see a writer come out, uh, hopefully Jeff, because I, I, these, these are like, these are not my heroes, these people. I, I read them every week. So I was a huge fan. So when I got to work with Jeff, it was under slightly unfortunate circumstances because, you know, I've done a lot of work on, I've been, I've been with Crank since pretty much the beginning. You know, I was, at one point, the only guy really there, and then the team grew, and uh, we we did a good job. And yeah, it was all, I always felt that I would become the editor of the magazine because I thought I was I was I was a natural choice, you know. And so um, when Jeff became the editor of the magazine, he moved from Sounds onto Kerrang. I guess I took a bit of umbrage, um, and I, it, it was uncomfortable for me. And um, and we sat opposite each other on a desk, <laughs> so, it was, so it was it was interesting. 
Um, we had a couple of moments, that's fair to say. Um, looking back on it, I would say that I was wrong. Um, I was younger then, you know. I was kind of a bit hot-headed about it, I guess. And and actually, and I, 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 I actually really have a lot of respect for Jeff, and I, I kind of regret some of I do regret that, actually. So whenever, whenever I see Jeff now, we're, we're very good friends, and yeah. I have no issue with that at all. It was, it was, it was a moment. It was, it was no one's fault. It just happened, you know, and I, I could have dealt with it better, put it that way. It, it, it was it just... Was it him, or was it? Did you have a certain direction you wanted the magazine to go to, and he didn't? He wanted to go maybe somewhere else, or no, no, it was never that. Um, we actually, as, as, as a body of people, um, we all pretty much went on natural instincts on what should be in the magazine, what shouldn't be, and I can't remember there being many occasions where we ever thought differently about that. When we, and we and we did, we took some risks. We did. We covered things like Power Station in the magazine. We even covered Prince in the magazine. You know, we covered some interesting things in the magazine. Um, Andy Taylor in the magazine. But whether that was right or wrong, there was never like a massive debate on the magazine. Is it, is it a good or bad idea? We always wanted to try and do something that was exciting and try and broaden the horizons of the music that we love. We didn't want to, ever, didn't want to play safe, you know. So so, I, so there was never a big disagreement about that. It wasn't to do with that. It was mo- it's much more to do with, with, with kind of inter- internal politics, I would say. It wasn't to do with the direction of the magazine at all. Yeah, what, what about the, the writers' egos? What, what, did any of them have, have any big egos at all? When I was there, um, I, when I was there, which was, I guess, best part of 10 years, I suppose, no, um, I never found that to be the case. I found actually, you know, so I, 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 I pretty much sub Jeff and I subbed all, 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 all the copy pretty much on the magazine. So, so, um, you know, if we ever changed something that someone had written or we felt we had to, you know, when we, re- we rarely changed what people thought, you know, you might tie it up a little bit, you know, or cut it a bit because it was too long. We never had an issue with anybody on that front. I think they, I think we both, Certainly, I did anyway, and I'm sure Jeff felt the same. We were very, very sensitive to what people. We were writers ourselves, you know. We didn't. We don't, no one wants their work changed, you know. So, so we, we tried to do a really good job on that. We we're very sensitive to that. So I, I never, I never had anybody I remember coming to me and ever complaining about something that we had or hadn't done with what they'd written. No, and and so no, I can't. That was never an issue on Korean, so I remember. Yeah. Did you ever hear anyone like they come in to you saying, oh, "If Rock and Rio comes up, I want to go." Is there ever any of that? Like that um, certain guys wanted to go um, on certain trips. Um, I think there was. I think uh, not so much trips, but I know there were certain people that wanted to interview certain artists. But I, I, I knew that, and I think the one, the one interview that I think everyone wanted to do was Kate Bush, because we were lucky enough that because Kate Bush, I guess, wasn't normally in the rock world, she always did Kerrang's, and she didn't talk to many people. She always spoke to us in Kerrang. So I know I had. I think I. I think I asked Mick Ward to do one of Dave Dixon to do another one of that, if I remember correctly. But that was one that I guess I could have asked anyone to do, and they would have all said fantastic. So that was one I guess everyone really wanted to meet her. And uh, and why not? She's a great artist, you know. So, but generally speaking, people no, there was there wasn't really any, you know, but there, there was loads of work to do, you know. There wasn't we weren't sure work, so if you didn't do one thing, you could do something else, you know. And then we tried to we tried to spread the work as evenly as evenly as we possibly could. And um, I, th- I think we got it, got, it, got it. I think we picked some good people to the interviews pretty much, pretty much most of the time. And what we got back was normally really, really great. You know, I think, I think, I think the great underrated writer. I mean, I think Nick Wall was a brilliant writer. He wasn't underrated. I think people realised Nick was really good. Was Dave Dixon, who I, I think was a fantastic writer. The problem with Dave was was that he he we only write about certain kinds of things. He wasn't the writer who would write about anything. He had sort of principles and beliefs and he felt strongly about it you know he was he wanted this kind of thing so we could only wheel him out occasionally for the right thing and the rocks being clearly very much the right thing um but i loved his stuff i thought he was really really good writer and very funny yeah and the first man to have a word processor on correct which made my job really easy a lot easier straight away 
You took a lot of chances with the magazine. Like uh, there was the Prince cover was one, but did you ever have any? <laughs> did you ever have any of the writers come up to you with a band, and you said, "There's no fucking way I'm putting them in Kerrang." Um, I don't remember that happening. No, um, because I think again, if it was a writer, they pretty much knew the parameters of what we were currently going to be doing. I think that you know, I, I do think that you know. Um, I mean, yeah, we took. I mean, we took chances and stuff. But then, for example, I mean, the Prince thing. The, the time we put Prince on the front cover, he was probably the hottest artist in the world, and he just made Purple Rain. And on that record, you could argue that his next record could have been Jimi Hendrix because he, he was in. He was really that he was a great guitar player. He was kind of on the cusp of where he could have gone in his career. He could have gone more rock. He didn't. So, so maybe looking back on it that was a bit premature to put him on the front cover. But at the time, it seemed like a really bold and interesting idea. And, and I know we sent someone to Detroit, I think, to cover that, so, or somewhere in America. And it was, it was cool. So, but yeah, I mean, you, I, mean I, think, I, think, I think it was better to kind of to try and do those things than, than, than not. Um, and it might, and, but I, I think some people in America were quite peeved about the, the Prince cover. I believe it, it didn't go down well with perhaps the real hardcore metal fans. So I completely understand that. And so, but, but, it was a, but again, in those days, we could afford to take those kind of risks because, because of the nature Nature, nature of the, ma- the magazine. By the same token, you know, we I remember there was a couple that came into the office one day um, when I popped out for lunch. They were sitting in reception. When I came back, they were running a record store in Seattle, and they gave me a tape. So we're managing this band called Queensryche. What do you think? And I played the tape, and it was brilliant. And so we went big on that, like straight away, and that blew up. So you know, so so I think that so you know, you just you, you go with what you feel at the time. And you have to go with your natural instincts and your natural feel. And so hopefully most of the time we went down the right path. Yeah. Now, now looking back on it now, the magazine, I think, went from the beginning. It was monthly to fortnightly to weekly. And then you did extra yeah. Kerrang! and Mega Metal Kerrang! Well, do you and think there was, there was Lady Killer specials, I think, as all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, Guitar Heroes, yeah, specials, yeah. All sorts. You think, what, which decision do you think was the worst one? Because Malcolm kind of hinted that it was going weekly really diluted it. In a lot of ways, well, what do you think? Well, yeah, because see, my span is interesting because um, because I actually joined pretty much when it was when it went to the to the fortnightly spot from the monthly spot, which I thought was a really good spot to have. It kept the quality up, I think, being 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 a fortnightly, um, and I'd left before it went weekly, so I didn't ever experience Kerrang! as a weekly magazine, which I think would have changed a lot of the parameters of the magazine, but actually looking at, but actually today, it's the thing that really makes it, I think, but it's one thing that makes it really stand out, is having that weekly thing, you know, so, so I, I so for me, I, for me, I was comfortable with fortnightly, but I never really experienced monthly or weekly, so I was just, I, was, I just went there when it was a fortnightly magazine, so I was, I was very happy with that, yeah, I think that's a good... It, it definitely worked for us as a team, you know, to get we, we got a quality magazine, you know, within within that that that, that deadline. So it's, it's okay to do that, you know. So yeah. Hi, this is Chris Tangaridis, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. I know you went on to do Raw magazine, but what what made you I did. what made you leave Kerrang? Um, I think that um, I think for the political reasons I, I I mentioned to you earlier, I just just felt. You know that I I I, I kind of lost the, lost the love a little bit because of that, and I was offered the opportunity to, to become the editor of Metal Hammer magazine, uh, the UK edition, not run by the same people that look after Metal Hammer now. It's run by it was a German team of people that were kind of launching into the UK, and so I and I asked some of my colleagues on Kerrang, you know, would they like to join me? And most of them said yes, they would. So we kind of, we had we kind of all left as a group of people, and um and we went on to Metal Hammer. 
and and fairly soon realised that we couldn't make the difference to that magazine that we really wanted to for for various reasons, and, um, which is quite dis- disappointing and disheartening for us as a team of people. And so there came a point um, after a while where we, we kind of sat down and said, look, we can have this job or we can have no job. What do you think is better? And we kind of all agreed we'd rather have no job than that job. So we all left. So we finished. We finished an issue, not to leave, not to leave them in any problems. We, we put an issue to bed, and then we all left. And when we sat in a in a bar, and thought, what are we going to do with our lives? <laughs> what, do, what do we know about? You know, and we know about putting together a rock magazine. So we we formulated you know, this kind of vision of what a new rock magazine might look like. And um and happily, you know, I I, I was able to use. A, I, I had a friend called Pete Winkleman, who's now involved in football actually, but, but was in the music industry at the time. And uh, we mentioned it to Pete, and we when we, we we thought, can we get some backing? Can we get backing for for our, for our plan? And we and actually we couldn't. And but Pete said, look, you know, what do you think you can sell? And we said, well, you know, we could we can sell some magazines. So we can do that. You don't need any backing. You can just do a deal whereby you pay retrospectively for the printing. So actually, we we managed to do that. We managed to you know to pay pay afterwards, so to speak. So we could do it. We could do it. And had it not sold, of course, that would have been a very, very difficult situation to be in. But we had a fact, we had confidence in ourselves, and we were a team. We we, we all knew each other if we worked together on two magazines by that point already, and we went for it, and um, and we pulled it off, and uh, and uh, and and then after a while, you know, um, we were approached about you know about buying the mag- someone wanted to buy the magazine, um, and so we ended up selling the magazine. Um, only on the proviso that everyone would, would keep their, their their jobs and their roles, which everyone did. And um, and then I, and in the meantime, I got off to another job. After about eighteen months, I got off to another job to work on the record company side, and I've been doing that ever since. But you know, I'm really proud of the fact that we we managed to get that magazine together because uh, and some of the things in Raw, if you look back on the issues, are still things you see in magazines today. Some of the things we did. Um, the way we approached it are still used today, and they weren't they were things we 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 weren't happening at the time that we thought was quite a good idea so um i think I think we did a, we did the best we could on that magazine we tried very hard and uh, we and we, we and we loved it yeah so I, I think um you know yeah yeah, I remember I, I I bought Raw when it came out. I think I bought probably the first ten or fifteen issues i thought oh, I cool. thought it was really good compared i i yeah. I, I was i was like as a reader i was I was comparing Kerrang with raw all the time. Right. No, I knew who the I knew who which writers were which and all and who I could trust and all that. Yeah. But I was looking at Raw, thinking, okay, what have they got in this magazine that Kerrang doesn't have? I did do yeah. that for a while. Yeah. Well, we. I mean, obviously there was competition between the two because I mean, Kerrang, I guess we're looking at what we were doing, and but you know, at the end of the day, but both magazines at that point there was enough. They were they both sold very well. You know, our figures on Raw were very good. Looking back on it. And, um, you know, I, I didn't leave because I didn't do that. I just left because I just got offered another situation. I thought I kind of had done the... Ma- I'd been in magazines over 10 years by that point and having, you know, worked on Kerrang, tried Metal Hammer and then started a magazine in conjunction with my colleagues at Raw. I thought I'd kind of done a lot of work in journalism. So I, I think I needed a new challenge at that time. And so I was... So it was good for me to move on, I think. And um, But I, I obviously, I love my, my, uh, my decade or so in journalism. I think it's formed... If from, I mean, I, I still talk to people today that know me more for that than for whatever I've done for the past twenty odd years, whatever you know. So, uh, and some of the bands I work with, I, I, went, I saw, you know, I saw Mr. Big 
uh, the other night, and I know I know Eric Martin from being a journalist. You know, we had yeah. a good chat about that the other night. So, so it's all useful stuff, and you know, and because you know, it, it, the shelf life of bands is really long now. I mean, scorpions. I mean, you know, um, no, no, no one's giving up early. You know, it's great. So I, I, I still know all these people. Yeah, I just have two questions to finish up with, Dante, before sure. I leave you go. No um, which Donington stands out for you? Because I'm sure you probably went to many of them. Um, two, I think. Um, actually, no, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to say one, because that's just, you know, there's, there's actually many. But I'm going to, well, no, no, I'm going to say two. Um, I think the very first one, because I don't think I'd, ever, I'd actually been to a rock festival before, and I um, I was asked to cover for Record Mirror. Well, I was on Record Mirror at that time. And um, I, I think I got the train up, and I went to the festival, and it was it was Touch, and it was Riot, and it was Saxon, it was the Scorpions, it was Judas Priest, it was Rainbow. It was an amazing lineup. It was very formative. I, I remember we being taken from the backstage to the stage in the back of an open van, was being bounced about. This was the transport for the media. Um, so things weren't quite hadn't quite come together. But in terms of an event, it was it was, and there was only one stage, and I guess seven bands. That seemed more than enough. Entertain me rather than having a hundred bands over three days. That one, it was, it was great. You know, I never spent any like it before at all. So I was, I was happy, and uh, saw loads of great bands that I loved, and was able to write a review of it. And I do remember though that the guy who gave, I was up, there was a guy who gave me a lift back to London, um, who was reviewing it for Melody Maker, who absolutely hated it, and um, and I loved it. And so, because he was giving me a lift, I had to be careful what I said in the car. That bite my tongue a little bit. He was complaining the whole way back, <laughs> and actually, he was so upset. He threw his shoes out the window on the way back. He didn't, didn't want the mud anywhere near him. She threw his shoes out the window <laughs> on the way back. Um, and so I remember. So I remember that. And then I guess the other one was was really the 1984 one because the lineup was just so amazing. I think with you know, ACBC, Van Halen. I think it was Accept, it was Y&T, it was Gary Moore. I mean, that, that 1984, I think, still considered perhaps one of the best lineups that we've seen in the UK in terms of one-day rock festival. You know? So I think 1984, also, it's first ever show in the, U, in the UK was opening that download in 1984. Um, and I, got, I had known Motley Crue. I'd, I'd already um, written, a, written a book on Motley Crue by that point. So um, uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was good to hang out with them. Um, and uh, Motley Crue at that point were very into biting people that they met. That was kind of thing in the band. They, they, they kind of bit you. <laughs> Some people were sent to hospital because these bites were quite serious. So um, I remember that. I remember there's a picture of me back then. I used it in my book of Motley Crue of me biting Nicky Six's arm in revenge. <laughs> um, I put that. In, I put that in the forward of my of the book. You know. So yeah. They were quite dangerous at that point, Motley Crue. <laughs> they were quite dangerous to be around. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought it was an amazing lineup that that year. I think the weather was good as well that year, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And la- last question, and I've asked all the writers this: the one right. band for the magazine that you championed that never made it big. Wow, a good question. Um, well, we were quite into Zodiac Mind Warp. I remember that. I interviewed him. We put him on the cover. We all thought he was great. Uh, I think we liked it from the kind of the early EP actually as well. We thought he was really good. Um, who else did we did we champion? Didn't oh, I'm trying. There was a couple of the name actually. They would put them on the cover. King's X would be one, I, I think. Well, definitely King's X. We, we all loved King's X, and actually, I think we probably all still do. Yeah, they're still playing. You know, they were amazing, and they definitely should be big, much bigger than they than they were. Um, yeah, and again, Crane wrote about them consistently <clears throat> in, in, someone, in the magazine. I think someone mentioned to me Dan Reed Network. 
Oh yeah, actually, that's a very good example because uh, I actually went to I, I went to um, I was in New York actually, and I remember when Dan Reed had just sort of started off, and he was kind of the hottest thing, you know, there really was uh, in New York at that particular moment in time. And everyone was at that everyone was at that show, was that that gig, and um, and yeah, and, and it was and it just, and that, that the track ritual was out, and it was it was such a big thing, and it was just like it was it was it was set up to happen. And it just it just didn't seem to click. I don't know why it didn't. I thought that I thought you know he made great music. He was a really great guy. It wasn't because he cut his hair. I don't think that has been put forward. I think there's one perhaps motive for that. But uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think Dan Reed sh- should have been way bigger. But I'm, I'm pleased to see that Dan Reed still plays around. He's still touring. You know, and he's very respected. You know, as well. Yeah. So that, that's really cool. I think you know. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the artist that I, that I loved um, um, was was Vinnie Vincent. Because I, I, Vinny, I, I met Vinny and Kiss, you know, when he joined Kiss and yeah. done the Lick It Up album, you know. And I really got to, I got to become very good friends with Vinny. I really liked him a lot. And then when he left Kiss, you know, and, and he signed to Chrysalis and he made those two Vinny Vincent Invasion albums, I think the, they're both great records, but the first one is a phenomenal record. If you like just over the top guitar playing, which I do, um, with good song, I think, I think that's an incredible album. I actually played it again for the reason it's, it's an incredible record guitar wise. He's playing guitar about the whole thing, but there's hardly any any break where he's not soloing on the whole record. And he, but, it, but it's based around kind of songs. So I, 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 I mean, I, I think Vinny as a solo wise, I was hoping would have been bigger than perhaps he was. I really loved, I loved his music. I thought he was. Great. There's probably many examples of bands like that who we all we all thought at the time are oh, this is fabulous. It just didn't quite didn't quite. Fit. I mean, I, I think actually a band that we that I know was very popular on Kerrang was was FM. Oh, um, yeah. the, I think the we all, Overland I think Brothers, we all, yeah. Yeah, but who are still obviously playing. So a very good band, and I think we were hoping they might have had more international success. You know, taking on the American, taking on the journeys, and you know the. And the night range at their own game. I think there was a lot of love I know for um, on the magazine for FM. Certainly, um, we all rated them very highly. Um, there's, uh, there, there's a lot of bands like that who I think we all we all felt this is great. But you know, it is it isn't just down to being making a great record. It's often down to having the right setup, the right infrastructure, the right management, the right label, the right timing, the right financial investment. If you look at the career of, of Iron Maiden, you know, who clearly have gone to great success. Um, you know, they, they, had, they had all, all the elements were kind of there, particularly the relationship between uh, Rod Small and Steve Harris, which has been incredible. And you know, Rod's been there since the very beginning. For a band not to have the same manager the whole career is so rare that to happen, you know. Um, and that becomes an enormous strength. So I think, so I think there's a lot of great bands out there who just don't have the right kind of setup or the right backing. You know, when you find that, which is quite rare, then you can go all the if you've got the talent, which clearly made can have. You know, you can go all the way. So there's, there's many reasons why these things didn't really click. It wasn't often to do with the music. In fact, it's probably never through the music. Because these bands are all really great, great. They make great albums, you know. But uh, it just didn't. I mean, the, the band I personally um, love, love was, is uh, or love is Angel. Um, and they never even came to the UK, let alone break the UK. I think if Angel existed, well, they, they do exist now, but if they if they started now, they'd be coming to the UK pretty quickly, I would think, in their career. So that that's a, that'd be, that would actually be the band that I would argue. Although, of course, the problem was Kerrang! came late into the day with Angel. They were almost like a band from the past when Kerrang! even started, you know. So they kind of contemporaries to Kiss. <clears throat> but there was a band I think that we all loved on the magazine, if I remember, and and actually didn't didn't have the success I think they should have they should yeah. have had. Yeah. What, what about a band that had 
were wildly successful that you didn't think it'd go anywhere? Like, was there a general consensus amongst the writers that oh, this band are a joke, they're never going to make it big, and all of a sudden then they're selling platinum albums and you know selling out arenas? Any any of them stick to mind? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that we didn't we didn't rate that suddenly just you know exploded. Um, no, I can't think of anything of any example of that particularly. But so we're normally pretty much on, I hope, on the money with stuff like that. With uh, when there was a you know a vibe on the band or something happening with the band, we were we normally uh, we normally were there on 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 the scene. We normally hopefully we back we try to back the winners if if if, if we could. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think I think the reality of it is is that you know it's very easy for anyone that has been proved anyone to have like a. A hit single. It's very difficult for to have a career. In fact, one band I would say that, and this is definitely true, that everyone on Kerrang really liked was Diamond Head. And um, and given how influential Diamond Head have been musically, that they it just didn't ever really take off. I mean, yeah, they still play today. They obviously made stomach records, but I mean, in terms of what they they, they were mooted as the next Led Zeppelin. That's kind of them for heading in sound. I think they kind of even said they are the next Led Zeppelin. And you know they. You know, such an influential band, Brian Tatler, amazing riff writer. You know, Sean Harris at the time was an amazing singer. He was, you know. So, yeah, I think Diamond Hits, another one I would say that, you know, that we all felt deserved better. Yeah. Well, well, Dante, I'm going to leave you go. You've given me a lot of your time here today. Oh, uh, okay. Well, that's fine. Well, that's fine. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to, happy to talk about it. That's yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So, you know, so. Oh, that, good. So, what are you doing now? You're doing your record label now or. I work. You know, I've worked Universal now for uh, for seventeen years. Oh wow! And, uh, working with rock, you know, working with rock, and uh, and still trying to work with established artists and new artists, you know, um, as best I can. So uh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't lost my passion or my commitment to the to the world of rock. Uh, it has changed, but actually, a lot, I, I think a lot of the old values are coming back. And you know, the most important thing still is making a gra- making great music. That's you know, being a great band, making great music, and that's never changed. Yeah, I think the problem now is getting it out there on the radio. They just want to play the hits. Well, that's that's always been the case in this country. You know, rock's never been sort of championed by our by our, our media over here much. You know, so but in a way that makes the fan base more loyal because you know they they almost love it more because it's kind of backs against the wall kind of stuff. You know, in a way. So we're kind of used to that living over here. I think that it's never going to get its fair crack of the whip, and some people melt down their nose at it. But that makes people love it even more. I think it's very much not against their mentality. I think you're either with it or you're not. If you don't understand it, it's not for you. Yeah. Do, do you have a, a a Facebook page or anything where people can get a hold of you? If they want to send you a message, yeah, I'm on I'm 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 Facebook. Okay, Just on Facebook, yeah, I'm on Facebook, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, it's a good place to be, I guess. Better or for worse. Yeah, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's embrace technology, yeah. social media, definitely. It's very important. Yeah. yeah. So well, I'm, yeah, of course, I'm always happy to talk to anybody about Korean days. They're a big part of my life, and I think we all, we all, we all loved it. You know. Excellent. Well, Dante, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and have a good oh, rest uh, of the evening. Thank you. All right. No so problem. Take care. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, and there you go, our talk with Dante Benuto, bringing Kerrang! episode number eight to a close. And uh, as Dante had mentioned, you can hook up with him on Facebook, so I urge you to do that. The guy is always up to all kinds of stuff, and as I said, uh, he is definitely a hardcore music guy. All right, so before uh, we get out of here for the week, I just want to 
throw out a little uh, info there. If uh, you haven't had a chance to uh, catch TSO yet this year, I definitely would urge you to uh, try and score yourself some tickets. I don't know. They're probably sold out everywhere for all I know. I know that uh, shows around here definitely sold out almost instantly, packed houses. But I have to tell you, it's one of the best productions that I have seen uh, Chris Caffrey and the rest of the guys in TSO put on. Just amazing. The smoke, the lights, the lasers, just the staging, the whole thing. And uh, lucky enough to catch the East Coast Band with Joel Holster just tearing it up on guitar as well. And uh, Jeff Plate doing some amazing drumming. And, of course, being able to hear Russell Allen out there singing. It doesn't matter what Russell's singing, whether it's, uh, you know, some super heavy stuff or anything else. Just Russell always brings it. And it's, it's pretty cool to, uh, to kick back in your seat and listen to to Russell sing and there's a bunch of elderly people just kind of going along no idea that they are you know watching some of the coolest metal guys out there just rocking it so uh, again if you haven't had a chance to catch TSO uh, definitely check that out see if they're coming near you see if you can still score some tickets I uh, can't speak to uh, you know performance of the West Coast band because obviously I'm not on the West Coast I never get to see the West Coast band but uh, I know the East Coast band production everything just amazing if you have a chance, do yourself a favor and check out TSO this year. So anyways, that is it for this week. Not sure what is up for next week. Richie's been doing a pretty good job of going out there and bringing lots of cool stuff back. And he did shoot a few things my way. have to do some editing. We'll figure it out. And I know he's got some other stuff that uh, he has to get to me as well. So who the heck knows what is going to be up for next week? For all I know, it could be Kerrang! number nine. And we'll blast out two of them two weeks in a row. I'm not sure yet, but uh, we'll cross that week when we come to it. But for now, that's it for this week. That's right. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.